0: Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, ambassador of 805 Connect and your host for this 805 conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University's School of Management and Tolman and & Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and encouragement. And I want to thank our podcasting partner, String Press, for this great studio where we have amazing conversations like the one we're going to have today. With Tom Reed. Tom, how are you?
1: Hey, I'm good this morning. You're good? Yeah.
0: I love that. Yeah. I like, I, I'm at least good, right? Oh, yeah, that's a minimum. It's, right? a, it's, it's a terrific day
1: in Santa Barbara,
0: I can tell yeah. you. Well, this this region is pretty <clears throat> spectacular in, in the kind of people we attract who want that high quality of life and you know work hard and play hard and just wake up and enjoy it. Every place you see, touch, and feel in Santa Barbara is pleasing and comfortable and fun. So uh, it's a great place to be. You know, we have. Uh, the, we were talking before we went on air about you know how technology has changed everything. You did a radio show for how many years? Twelve years. Twelve. Where was that? That was in Northern California, actually in Grass Valley. I, uh, I love Grass Valley. Oh, it's a great place. I lived up there for
1: uh, many years. Uh, moved there in '74. Uh, That was right out of the Air Force. I was a pilot in the Air Force during Vietnam. You were a pilot? Really? During Vietnam. And we put together a bunch of businesses in Auburn because they were building a federal dam in Auburn. And if they built the dam, we would have less water problems right now. All of the dams that were under construction and being considered were kind of politically uh incorrect because the environmentalists thought, you know, that would be a problem of some way, some kind. So uh, they didn't build the dam, but they had about a billion dollars of today's dollars invested yeah. in the dam, the Coffer Dam, 700 foot high bridge where the water is going to be 600 feet deep in downtown Auburn. And uh, (laughs) they were pouring concrete 24 hours a day, had the dam overlooked. We thought they were going to build the dam. I mean, that seemed obvious to us, but they never built it.
0: So that was 74 you were there?
1: Before that, we were putting businesses together to kind of speculate on on what would happen to that
0: little resort town. Um, Do you remember Old Town, Auburn? Absolutely. Do you remember the Gold Rush Plaza? Sure. I was the cook there. Is that right? Well, you know about the dam. What year was that? So I uh, graduated from high school in 71 and immediately escaped Los Angeles. And we drove, me and my buddy, got in a car. We, I wanted to get as far away from the San Fernando Valley as I could. And for some reason, we found <clears throat> ourselves in Auburn. It's midnight, and we're at a stoplight. True story. We're at a stoplight, and we look over at the truck next to it. It's my buddy's dad, who he'd not seen in five years. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and we're like, oh, my God. And so we're like, well, we, we, were, we were thinking we might go all the way up to Seattle because um, I had spent some time in Seattle. But we, we got waylaid in Auburn, and uh, we hung out in the Gold Rush Plaza every day. And after five days, we're like, gosh, we kind of like it here. Fun and I time. said to the uh, owner of the Gold Rush, <clears> I said, I'd like to get a job cooking. I've done some cooking. He goes, great, go get some whites and come back. And I came back, he showed me how to fry an egg and cook a hamburger. And he left and I didn't see him for three days. And so here I am at Gold Rush Plaza, which you remember they had a melodrama there on Friday and Saturday nights. And here I had to cook for 125 people. Eggs. 18 (laughs) years old and I don't know nothing. Oh my gosh, how about that? And you know Champ's Steakhouse right across the freeway? No, I don't. I don't remember that, I any managed, of that.
1: I managed Champ Steakhouse. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. that was one of our investments. We had uh, the Casa Adobe restaurant, Champ Steakhouse. We bought the airport. We got a bunch of pilots together. We bought the airport in Auburn, and I don't know if you remember, but they they built the the rim road between Highway 49 and I 80 right by the airport. It's called Bell Road. It was like the beltway, and so uh, that gave us new access, brand new access to the airport, but also. To the thirty acres of industrial that we had next to the airport and 175 acres of residential next to that that bordered on Belgium. You're
0: Road. in and you're in your twenties at this time, uh, right? thirties probably. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm uh I'm older than I look, I think, <laughs> uh, on radio anyway. But uh the uh that was the deal. And then we also had eighty acres between I eighty and down to where the water was going to be, Lakeview Estates, don't you know? So we had uh we were well ensconced in that town, and that was my—you uh, know—the airport Air Force was a great comeuppance for me. Sure. I played hockey and guitar in college. I was not a good student. Um, However, I'm still playing hockey and I'm still playing guitar. So I got more out of my college education than many people I know. Right. But uh, but I kind of grew up and matured a little bit when they handed me a $25 million airplane and an eight-man crew and said, you take this stuff to Vietnam and you take this stuff wow. to Ethiopia. And, and that was your deal. That was 20s.
0: Ethiopia?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We had marine bases in Ethiopia. Oh. And I, we, I flew into Tehran every month for four years. Shah was in power back then, early right. 70s. So Right. That was our friend in Turkey, uh, the the base that we're we using to stage sure. against ISIS. That sure. was Inchalik, Turkey, and Germany and Spain. And you know that was that was such a fun time.
0: I I uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my time in the Air Force. Five years. Do you think that um, stay with that for a second? What what skill set or what thematically did you learn in the military? That's stayed with you through your life? There's the things you learn in college, but then there's the things you learn in military experience that help prepare you for a life in the private sector. Well,
1: it's sort of an unusual story because I, I, I'm late to the party. Uh, every time I turn around, I seem to be learning things later than most everybody else. Okay. And so I was not a serious student, didn't think I had to be. I was just kind of making it up as I went along. The Air Force, as I mentioned, it was kind of a maturing phase for me. Mm -hmm. I learned a little bit about responsibility. I learned about disciplines. Um, Of course, it was great fun. I mean, flying, you know, my most exciting year of my life was pilot training. It was absolutely oh, incredible. They handed me a supersonic twin-engine jet fighter by myself for an hour and a half to go out into the area and practice aerobatics. Are you kidding me? That's <laughs> got to be the greatest <laughs> thing going. And so learning how to fly this heavy, it was a you know 160-foot wingspan, four-engine jet transport. That's what I did for four years. And uh, saw the world. And so it was... Uh, I was still kind of growing up back then right uh, there, but the but the authority structure the hierarchy of of authority respect for authority of course that was kind of contingent or or I would say consistent with that age we respected police officers we respected our parents back then none of that is uh, in phase right now
0: is it fair to say though cuz we're talking the 60s early 70s mm-hmm. there there was a distrust of authority
1: that was going on um, I was secluded into the military, right? And all of the objections of the Vietnam War and all the stuff that came down. I didn't. I was. I was sort of on the outside of that. I, I didn't experience the same thing of the people that walked around on the ground over there, got hurt, and came back from Vietnam and got excluded from society and kind of scorned. I was not. uh, I didn't experience that. I was stationed in New Jersey, of all places. Right. I went to Vietnam twenty-five times, but I stayed for two hours. Brought in tanks and. Because you're a transport, material. I was right. transport. Stayed for two hours and f- flew back. You were the FedEx of the war. I was the FedEx, and so I was. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't get it. I didn't get the war, which is why I didn't want to go there. I could have chosen an airplane that that was directly a part of the war, but I chose an airplane that was a transport.
0: Do you have a sense? Um, uh, we've had uh, ex-military <clears throat> on the show, and and uh, specifically uh, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, Special Forces. Mm has a project called Mission America which is connecting vets when they come back i mean there, there's a huge challenge huge opportunity we you right. know bring these young men back and, and they're broken in a lot of different ways right, right. No doubt. and how I do we how do we get them do you still do you do anything around vet work at all well, I'm a
1: little bit in a, a part of the Veterans Museum crew. That's John Blankenship oh. and the the uh, Clayson's Veterans Museum that's going to go in on Upper State Street, um, or actually Mid State Street, 1200 block. At one point, I go to their their military ball. Uh, I've spoken to the Vietnam's uh, you know Veterans Association here locally. I don't sleep, eat, and breathe it though. That's kind of more a Unity Shop right now for me. Right. Um, but when I came out of the Air Force, um, I'd have to say I, I kind of bought into the normal, natural form of uh, pursuing success and leadership. It had to do with um, uh, making a lot of money sure. and kind of the things that you could accumulate. And you, you'd, not to be harsh, but you would kind of use people to to gain your success. We. I wanted to be a millionaire by the time I was 35. I, I'm, I don't know why, but that seemed to be the mantra back then. So I made it on paper. It was a it was a stress-filled deal, I can tell you. That was the Auburn what stuff. Business, that was, OK, great, being I a had, developer yeah, and all of that. I had yeah. partners, all of that stuff. I had a had 1,700-acre ranch. I had my pool and my tennis court and my runway all staked out with my partners, and, and we were blowing and going. And some guys came along and started talking to me about another way of looking at life, a different worldview. And it was a spiritual side of things. Not religious, but it was Christ-centered. And I was kind of intrigued by that because you know, I jokingly would tell people that I had a drug problem when I was a kid. I was drugged to church. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't vibrate to it. I, it. It was meaningless to me. And so when I went to college and Air Force and the rest of it, I left all that behind. But these guys were guys I respected. Hmm. So I looked at it. About eight months later, my house burns down on the ranch. Mm, and that was a shock. I never really lost anything. I mean, I never even had anything stolen from me. So all of a sudden, all this stuff that I had literally accumulated by flying around the world for, for all those years all went up in about 20 minutes. And I'm thinking, gosh, this is, this is uh, why does this feel so bad? I mean, I didn't, it was a loss, but it was an emotional impact that I, I'll never forget. So I moved to Reno, Nevada. We had a couple of businesses up there uh, and I didn't have a house anymore. So I managed the stuff right. in Reno. I had an electronics company and an area fast food franchise. And I kind of continued this deal and I bought, the, I bought five acres. I don't know if you're familiar up there, but on 395 goes down from Reno to Carson City and on down to Gardnerville and all of that. So just off of 395 south of Reno in Washoe Valley, I bought five acres and moved onto the property and commenced building a house i was not, not even actually sure what I had in mind, but I was building an out-of-pocket learning to build. But I had a three-year contract with this electronics company that we had sold, and the fast food franchise wasn't working out very well, so I was just kind of keeping my options open. So I built, I built this house, and I was uh, going to be free and clear, uh, owe nothing on the property after a couple of years, and if I paid for the house as I went along, I would not only know how to build, but I wouldn't have a mortgage. And I had some other things. I was redirecting the creek that was through right through my five acres. I was going to generate power and sell it back to Sierra wow. Pacific. I mean, I had a—this wow. was, was a fun deal. So one year to the day, I'm on the property. We're sheetrocking the inside. And uh, it's a long story in itself. I won't dwell on it. But my friend uh, who I was feeding sheetrock to two guys on scaffolding, they were all friends, said, Tom, what is that? what's that sound? And I, I thought he was talking about the creek. It was a high snowfall the winter before and it was melting off white water in our little creek about 25 feet down below in this swale that was 150 I don't know, 50 feet across, something like that. But what he was hearing was, a, was something different, a little bit lower rumble. And he says, Tom, what is it? He looks out the back window. is a bedroom window, not big. And this low frequency vibration kind of registered with me and I yelled for everybody to run. Right. I had no idea what it was. It was like, like this science fiction movie began. I ran about fifty feet and I turn around, and here's my house. I mean, it was it was really fun to build this house. The floor weighed sixteen thousand pounds. It was railroad boxcar flooring, two and three eighths inches thick, oak and mahogany tongue and groove. So, so it even was
0: recycled. Oh yeah,
1: I was. It was beautiful stuff, and two by six studs, custom everything, you know, windows. And all it was. It wasn't huge, but it was my starter uh, house, and. Uh, Great fun, and so I turn around, and here is here i 'm about fifty feet from the house in this corner two by six stud corner now that 's a pretty tough corner, buckled about halfway up, and the roof starts flying toward oh, no. me i 'm fifty feet from the thing, so it's like it 's like long story, good friend of mine on the scaffolding was killed, everybody oh, was no. buried. Lost everything because I had no mortgage. No mortgage insurance and the house wasn't done. So that was a, that was a pivotal time when I had to reevaluate just about all of life. Wow. That was 1983. I, got, I stepped out of the business world. And so um, you know, if we want to talk about leadership principles, everything I switched. Do. Everything switched for me.
0: So tell me, tell me give me <clears throat> three things that switched. Well, number one, um,
1: there was shock all over again. But when it wore off, I began to think there's what's important in life mm. what what's what are we doing here anyway what's the meaning of this what's our purpose And so I began to pursue this spiritual path just a little bit more and I was I w- I'd been a folk singer through college I made my way of playing you know coffee houses back then right. so sure. so I was I was writing some things about what I was learning and I began to share some of that and began to travel so I became a Traveling musician for fifteen years, and so you, a,
0: you so now you're not out. developing, you're not doing it. It's just like I'm getting stepped on the road. Out. I'm going to write, step out, songwriter, and I and I teamed up with a guy.
1: Uh, kind of a long story. I went to Washington D.C. I attended a thing called the National Prayer Breakfast.
0: I had no I've eye, heard of I've heard of that. Yeah,
1: I had no interest in going initially. I got invited. Um, it sounded like a watered-down political spiritual thing that would be like the worst of both combinations. I mean, it just didn't sound like a good deal. Right. But my brother lived in Washington, D.C. So there you go. He was a lobbyist for General Motors, and I, I figured, well, shoot, I, I need to get out of town anyway. So I went to this thing. I was just fascinated. 125 nations represented in this thing, and they were talking about not, not religion, but they were talking about the spiritual side of life, And there was no media allowed, and so it was a pretty objective thing. And I I teamed up with a guy that was moving towards San Francisco, not to move, but to travel there and meet with businessmen, middle and upper management business guys, and talk about life. What's important? We didn't have any agenda. So I, I traveled with them every other week to San Francisco for three days. And we'd meet with 25 or 30 middle and upper management business guys who turned out to not have any friends for the most part. They were putting oh. their head down, working hard. Right. Uh, but a lot of them, it, 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 they, were, they were a little uncertain as to, to who they could put their confidence in to talk about. Uh, like if they were going to sell their business or they had a, an employee problem or an ethical issue. Or their daughter loved them till they were 15, and now she, now she hates them, and he doesn't know what to you know, that kind of stuff. If you don't have an agenda, you can sort of be a friend to these guys and talk about life and what's
0: really important. So you, that's what I did for 15 years. Did you find that, um, I mean, I've, I've been CEO of businesses and am right now, that you kind of, you feel like the Lone Ranger sometimes, which is why there's... There's a lot of these CEO groups now, right? right? There's YPO and the WPO group, all and, that, yeah. and all of that stuff. It's lonely at the top, they say. Right? Yeah. No, it is. Oh, there's no doubt about it. Right, because you, you in, in an area where we're trying, we, the word transparency is, is big now. We want to be really transparent. Yet, as the boss, um, it, it's counterintuitive to be, well, I'm going to use the word vulnerable right it's not a bad word it's it sounds, sounds like transparency but is that dangerous is that risky it, it, it's very risky but I, I find that as an entrepreneur i'm managing risk all the time mm. and to be a great entrepreneur you have to be risk averse i mean it's just like yep it's a risk okay part of the game that's, now what and if you can't handle risk that, this that's not the role for you yeah. but I'm also, I spend a lot of time working on um, being a better speaker and a better storyteller. And what we've learned is the more vulnerable we can be in those stories, the more personal, even though counterintuitively, is like, I'm not gonna tell that story to those prospects, yet that's the story that gets them to trust you. I think what I've learned, you ask a couple of things that I've learned,
1: is that life is, is kind of a paradox. It's an awesome, mystery, paradoxical. And part of it to relate to just what you touched on is we think when we go to a cocktail party, meet people in social and, oh, and, well, what do you do? Oh, well, I'm an attorney. I'm a stockbroker. I work for so-and-so. I've Here's my successes. Here, and we think we're going to pull people into our lives by impressing them. You know, men are always trying to gain respect right, from our wives, from other business guys, from anybody we're talking to. We're trying to figure out, well, how can I get this guy to somehow like me or respect me. So we're trying to impress each other. And we think if we share a weakness or a failure or a struggle that we have, oh, man, they're going to just discount me and that's going to be the end of it. Turns out the exact opposite is true because we're not alone in those things. And that actually pulls people into our lives because they identify with that stuff. So what we did in San Francisco is we meet one on one with guys and, and I would meet in the financial district of San Francisco and I say, do you know the guy? He's like 10th floor in the building right next. No, I don't know him. Well, let me introduce you. And so we would end up starting small groups of kind of like-minded guys. So you would network would, them. Network. You would help them. Yeah. Yeah. And we'd never get a group more than about six or seven. And on any given day, they'd have four or five, you know,
0: based on travel would schedules. Would they work in the same – they'd be different businesses, right? Oh, so they'd be – It w- wouldn't have to be, but it normally would be. Yeah. yeah.
1: So and then we'd have one one large group of about forty or now, fifty. Now was this guys a and,
0: business? No. So the,
1: so you just did this. This was a, if I showed up with with that that name of that business on my card. Yeah. That would set the agenda. So now I hand you the card. You're the CEO. I hand you the card. I'm now a part of a marketplace uh, gathering, something like that. I don't, whatever it would be. Then that would be the agenda. Okay, you want me to sponsor something. You want me to join you. You want me to support it financially. So what's the agenda? And literally, if you were not sitting in that chair and somebody else was the next time I came in, I would be pitching that agenda to that person. Right. So it's impersonal by definition. I had nothing on my
0: card. So when I met that CEO, I would just talk to him, get to know him. I'm just a random guy, walked into your office and I want to help make your life better.
1: Well, it, was, it <laughs> wasn't really hard. cold calling. I mean, I, I, I was fascinated when I first met this guy who mentored me into this thing because I said, right. well, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, no, I've been no, in I business. Tell me. Who's got time for that kind of thing? Well, I'd meet with somebody and they would, they would, uh, they'd say, well, you need to meet so-and-so. I'll, I'll give them a call and introduce you. So it, I would, it would be like an appointment, but I had no agenda, literally no agenda for these guys. And now we also had Walter Hoadley, who was the world economist for B of A he would have a, he'd have a group of 40 or 50 guys that meet for breakfast once a month at the top floor, 52nd floor of the B of A building. Oh, and nice. so he'd talk about life from his perspective. And he would then invite somebody else in the group to just share a little bit of their life experience and where they found value. And some of them would say, you know, almost all of them would, after a while would say, you know, I'm really gaining a lot from this small group that I'm meeting with. You know, again, it, it's spiritually oriented and it's it's confidential, so it's right this transparency thing. It's fair game, and nothing was to be shared out of that that room. So it it gave people permission to share those kinds of things that we're talking about. So that would, and then I'd be sitting around a table, and somebody would you know they they would share a little bit of their life. They'd leave the room with a question so it it would eat for 20 minutes somebody would talk for 20 minutes and then for 20 minutes we talk about whatever the question was that was left with the group and the guys would say you know i hear about these small groups what what are those all about and so i'd say well i'll come by and talk to you i have a cup of coffee first
0: rule of fight club is you don't talk about fight club
1: right (laughs) (laughs) you know it, it was it wasn't a it wasn't a orchestrated kind of a pitch. It just was very naturally unfolding. And so it was just, that's what I
0: did for 15 years. So the, the person who's listening right now, um, would you, how would they find a group like this? How? Cause that's, cause I, I like this idea and I, yeah. I'm a natural networker. So right. I'm, I've got plenty of lots of little groups of people right. like that. Um, but it's, I love the concept of it being no agenda. That's um, the the sidebar. uh, I learned about meetings, categorized meetings in four things. Listener, you can write this down. So the first kind of meeting is an informational meeting. Mm -hmm. I'm going to come and get information. It's largely been replaced by email and things like that. I don't need to go sit and listen for information, but that's a kind of meeting. The second kind of meeting is a decision-making meeting. We're all going to get together. We're going to make a decision. You may have first portion of it is information. Here you need some information to make a decision. Mm -hmm. But if you let people know it's a decision-making meeting, they're going to come prepared and know we're going to make a decision. The third kind of meaning is brainstorming. Hey, we're kind of stuck. We're going to put some people into a room and figure out some ideas. We're just going to brainstorm. We're not going to make any decisions. There's no speeches. We're brainstorming. But the fourth one is the no agenda. Mm-hmm. So I would have no agenda breakfasts once a month where I would anybody in the company we're gonna, I think we met at Sambo's down on the beach. and I'd said, I'll be there from you know seven to 830. No agenda, just whatever we were talking about. And that was wildly popular. And I, I love this idea that you're talking about of, of no agenda. Let's go back to how does someone get that? Because I, I got to feel that that's a huge, benefit. And the person listening right now may be thinking, I could use a bit of a posse here. I mm. could use some people. How would someone, because chances of Tom walking into their office saying, hey, we're going to have a meeting, is not so much. What would they do? Well, um,
1: what we're really talking about is relationship building. Yeah. If you get tied up into the agenda of the business world. If it's if your self-esteem and your, your net worth is your self-worth, it's got a dollar sign in front of it, and it's all up to you, and you better make it work, and you, you better put your head down and work harder, it doesn't have anything to do with relationships. That has to do with trying to trying to make life work from a purely materialistic and kind of uh, natural sort of way. We have obligation. we gotta have a house, we gotta have food, we gotta take care of our family, that kind of thing. But none of that has to do with relationships for the most part. Now, we, you know, they overlap, and we, we kind of know people and their acquaintances. But to get beneath the acquaintance level into a little bit deeper knowledge, that's what you've invited people to do by just saying, let's, let's meet for coffee and talk. We don't, have a, we don't have an agenda. And so for the, for the listeners that, that may not have that sort of connection – I'll bet they know somebody, could be a next door neighbor, could be an associate in a related business. It may not be the person in the business they're involved with. Just call them up and say, you know, I'm just,
0: uh, I was just thinking about you.
1: Just wonder how things are going. Love to buy you a cup of coffee or let me buy you lunch.
0: And, and, and they're thinking, what does he want?
1: Of course. And you can say, you know, I don't have anything for you. I just, I'd just like to have a little time with you, find out what's going on in your life.
0: And people, and I do this, And it's investing in relationships. It's, um, there's a guy who wrote a book on this and we've had him on the show. So listener, go back in the back catalog and look for the show by David Noor, N-O-U-R. He wrote a book called Relationship Economics. Based on, we we understand social capital. Mm -hmm. We talk about that. We talk about, um, I wanna withdraw. I need something from you. So I'm gonna call and ask you for something. And depending on the strength of our relationship, I'm either I've made some deposits and I have something to withdraw Mm, or mm, not. Right. And so he's written a whole his whole life now is dedicated to teaching business people how to think about their life that way, as opposed to, as you said, the materialistic part, Mm. because you as you learn twice when it all burned up. And the other, it all fell down, and I mean, you lost a dear friend. Right, that 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 stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't, and it's actually
1: changed my worldview
0: to the point of, um,
1: you know, what your what your other interview e was about is kind of this universal. I, I would tell you that mine is a little bit more sequestered into that Christ-centered spiritual side of things, because my worldview is is that there is a God, and that it all emanates from from him and it all makes sense because of that. And the relationship building leads me to things like the unity shop, because I I can tell you when I was in the Air Force and when I was in business, I didn't have time for people. Mm. If it wasn't gonna lead to a deal, I just didn't have time. I I mean, I'm almost ashamed to admit that now, but I, I look back on that time and I was, my agenda had to do with my agenda. And if you could help me, that's terrific. But if you can't, I, you know, I'm, I'm moving on busy. I'm moving on. And so what happened when I kind of woke up spiritually um, was to realize that, that instead of kind of using people to gain the stuff and the, and the success and the deal, it'd be better to use the stuff and love people. And it, it just changed. And so I had, I had a heart for people that I never would have. They weren't cool. They weren't the people that you, that could help you,
0: on your path to whatever you thought success was. If you were, if I were to ask you, um, let's say when you were in the middle of that, how successful you felt on a scale of one to ten, and then how successful you feel now on a scale of one to ten, would you give me different numbers? Oh, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. The
1: the financial statement with with all the, the intangible stock and you know. Limited partnership, general partnership, interest and in all of this stuff. It, it amounted to a lot of money, but it was stressful. It was hard, tough going, and and it didn't really matter. I, it was the journey. So I bought into it, and so I was in the middle of it, covered up under a pile of stuff. But I that was where I was headed. Not very content, I can tell you. No peace. Uh, it was just it was just life at that point. But then, if I looked at it now, I'd. I probably have, my financial statement doesn't doesn't look that well because I never really recovered. When I lost everything with the mudslide, I stepped out of the business world. And so even though I had some f- great times recording and built a studio in my house where I recorded with the Oakland Symphony, I recorded with Mike Pinder, founder of the Moody Blues. I got a chance to just to write some f- fun things and did a good number of recording projects, even some teaching projects uh, recorded that were from men's conferences that I would teach and do music for. All of that made sense, uh, but my financial statement isn't, isn't anything to, to write home about now, but talk about peace, contentedness, and I feel like I've, I've grown up and learned what life is all about.
0: So, I mean, I love that was exactly the right answer. And, and the, here's, here's the trick. You know, we're of an age where life has taught us those things. Mm the person who's listening might be um, we've got a lot of uh, uh, startups. We've got a lot of students listening. Mm-hmm. We have people kind of in the, be- in the first part of their career and they're, well, no, it's all about my idea. It's about my startup. It's about my, you know, I've got to get this thing out. i got to flip the thing. Out. I, mean, you, I mean, you know, you know exactly sure. what that oh, is. Yeah. And it's fun. Entrepreneurial. It's so,
1: it's so fun. I think I'm spiritually entrepreneurial. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I don't, well, I don't, you know, I do music uh, in church every Sunday. I'm doing a, a, a song. Uh, this is I don't know how your recording is time wise and when people might listen to this, but it's for Mother's Day. I'm doing the quintessential song about mom, and it's it's that's fulfilling for me. But I, I'm not tied to a to a religious world. I'm just realizing that all of life makes sense when your where, you know your world view puts value in people, and our relationships and the interconnectedness and how all that works. Now you take that to the entrepreneurial business world, entrepreneurial business world to accomplish things totally in It makes line. all the difference. It, it makes really, all the yeah, difference, right, 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 but right. it's just horsepower to make, make things work. You're not alone and by, by yourself. It's, you, have, you have the support that can come from relationships and if you're contented in, in light of you know, who God is and what the world's all about, you can relax into it. Uh, and that is, I just
0: think that's gold. So that, that, that person who's kind of getting started or in the early part of that path, um, they, they go into an event or they're gonna meet some people. So a way to approach it is, what can all these people give me? Mm-hmm. Or what can I get from all these people? Or what could I give these people?
1: What can you give them that comes out of relationship? And so maybe instead of going with the question, um, what can can they do for me? What can I learn from them? Mm. So the question might be, if you have coffee with somebody, is what have you learned? Mm. So that's
0: an open-ended deal. So that could be anything. And what yeah, happens? Right, right, right. That's a no, kind of a no agenda question.
1: Right, exactly. So if you're asking somebody that, and they're, then they're, they have to think for a minute and say, what well, do you mean like about reading financial statements or do you mean like life? Let's, let's talk about no, all of about, it. Yeah, it. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about all of it, but let's include life, okay? Let's include what, what have you learned? So then what happens is it gives them permission to say, well, what are you thinking about these days? What, do you, what's, what have you learned? Well, you know, I'm a bit of on a journey here. I'm trying to. Uh, but what happens is it gives you permission to talk about things other than the dollar sign and how much this deal might potentially make. Because I can tell you that, that uh, those, are, those are temporary relationships. The monetary deal, the business side, they tend to be that way. It's transactional. And transactional. And God forbid it doesn't work out.
0: Mm, you know, mm, managing mm, expectations. Mm, mm.
1: What happens to the relationship?
0: Gone. You don't ha- well. You didn't
1: have one. You never had one in the first place. Right. Even if you thought you did. Right. I'm, I meet with a guy every Monday morning in a small group now, and he's a business develop. He's a big time developer, uh, not locally, but nationally, and uh, just a great guy. But he says, you know, I, I, I fooled myself into thinking I had friends. When I did a business deal with guys, you know, financing a big mall or a, sure. a big deal, I, I just thought, you know, we, we went through a lot of stuff, handled a lot of stuff, a lot of problem solving, facing and resolving these issues. But when the deal was over, good, bad or indifferent, the relationship waned, usually. And so he's saying, you know, that's not very fulfilling mm-hmm. in, it's, in that by mm-hmm. definition. There's no there's no fulfillment there now. When I bumped into the Unity shop, which is kind of you know what I'm giving my time to now, that was 14 years ago, it vibrated to me because it, it valued people. It was helping people. It was doing what we're supposed to do to take care of each other. Now I had, I had a little foundation that I had started in Nevada and was part of one so people could actually contribute to that to, to help me be available to do all that stuff. But I wasn't doing fundraisers and I wasn't talking to them about f- doing it. And I, was, right. and I was, you know, doing concerts and selling. I mean, I had T-shirts and songbooks and albums and cassettes and all that stuff. But it was all self-done. So it wasn't a big, it wasn't a big deal. Very fulfilling and great fun for me. But all of that was, it, it was, it pointed toward, um, and when I stopped traveling and moved down here in 2000, And bumped into the Unity Shop. It was a
0: natural succession for me. So tell people who, because not everybody who listens is from the area. Yeah. So tell them what the Unity Shop is. It's a unique deal. This is our 100th anniversary. And Uh uh,
1: yeah, Yeah, 100th anniversary. Started with Pearl Chase, a pretty famous name in town. I jokingly tell people I've been there the whole time, and they believe me. Uh, it's this gray hair bit. I'm not sure about that.
0: No, it's, it's pewter. Is that what it is? It's pewter. not gray. It's pewter.
1: Well, I, I tell people I have to airbrush this stuff gray to make me look more extinguished looking. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, I bump into this thing, and here's this deal taking care of and addressing a problem that every city in America struggles with. It's the people that nobody really wants to deal with. It's yeah. the low-income folks. They're just under the radar. They're, they're in Santa Barbara, they'd be the support staff for the resort town. Right. So they're maids. They're uh, waitresses. They're groundskeepers. But they're, they're the entry-level income folks that, with rents as high as they are in Santa Barbara, you know it's a pretty delicate budget to get that working. 60% of our our clients at Unity Shop, of which we have 20,000 people that we take care of every year. It's a different 20,000, but but it's 20,000 people on a rotating basis on average. And 60% of them are single moms or single parents. So you take a single mom with two or three kids and two jobs entry level, and you've got a very delicate balance. So what happens is something happens. They lose one of the jobs. A kid has a medical problem. The transmission blows up. It doesn't take anything to tip that little budget upside down, and these people that we kind of appreciate, but don't—they don't really have a voice. They don't—they're right. not right. really visible. Um, they're in trouble, and if we don't help them, it's our responsibility as a community to somehow figure out how to take care of them. Every city in America has them, I can tell you. If you don't take care of them, they get deep into welfare. So now we've got over half the country on some kind of a welfare subsistence deal. And they have the potential of running homeless. Going, I mean, that's, that's the end of that road because that mom that runs out of money before the end of the month will say, do I buy food or do I, do I pay the rent? I can't do both. That's an impossible situation. So I'll tell you what she's going to do. She'll buy food because the rent is not due for you know, another two weeks. Right. And so I, my kids are hungry today. If she does that, it's expedient. But it could be the worst thing she does because in two weeks' time or 90 days or 120 days later, the landlord is going to bounce them out because there's no reserve funds to draw from. So now the whirlpool starts, and now the real trouble starts. So what Unity does and what Unity stands for is we have 300 agencies in the county signed up with us, and they refer those 20,000 people to us. So what happens is they're already in, magic word, relationship with these people right it could be a teacher or a nurse in a school that finds out quicker than anybody that the family's in trouble because they're working with the kids could be welfare could be department of social services aid to families of dependent children pick one of those or it could be a church or a counseling center or a hospital they're all signed up with us so as quickly as they can refer them down to us the quicker we provide that safety net get them back on their feet and we tell them we'll take care so what of what do you do for them everything except pay their rent and they can pay their rent if everything else is taken care of. That's the formula. So we've got a grocery store, give away about a million dollars worth of groceries every year. We've got school clothes. We've got school supplies. We have professional clothing for people that are trying to better themselves in the workplace. If you lose Real, your job. Oh, I've heard of that. It's called Smart. It's, it's a great program. Started in 08. We adopted it. It was, it was an independent one, but it's I, totally I consistent. Right. So that's with now part of you. Part of us. So that provides so, adult clothing. Let's say that single mom is newly single. Dad's run off. Now she's got to get a job or a better job, and she needs the appropriate attire. Or a guy loses his job, pretty competitive marketplace. If he's going to try to be a teller in a bank, he needs a coat and tie. If, he, if he's got a different kind of a job, he needs different attire. But also tips on taking an interview. He needs some resume help. We do all of that at the unity really? shop.
0: Yeah. How many people work there? That's a lot of work.
1: It's a lot of work. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll ask you in a second what you think, because we've got a fleet of trucks. We've got a, a, a gift shop on State Street. We've got 10 different programs, one of which is long-term recovery from disasters. Now, you know, Santa Barbara is kind of vulnerable to fires, earthquakes, right. uh, you know, even flooding tsunamis, that kind of thing. And because of the fire thing... I, I was the chairman of the VOAD for a while, getting that started. That's volunteer organizations active in disaster. That's organizing all of the entities in town that come after the first responders. Right, right, and it's right, about right. a two-year process to get yep. people back on their yep. feet. We're the only agency, because of that, I know, we are. The Unity Shop is the only agency that takes care of people after the fire, after the mudslide, after the disaster, whatever it is. And having been there, I know a little bit about what that feels like. So we do a little hand-holding, a little, little emotional encouragement for sure. But if when they need whatever they need over a average about a two years, there's no limit, but about a two-year process, we'll provide furniture, household goods, linens, towels, pots and pans, uh, groceries because they're going to need that, clothing, school clothes. Schools, I mean, it keeps going. If you lose everything, you don't know where to start. And there's more ways of getting this thing wrong, Mark, than getting it right. Giving is more complicated than you would ever guess. After the T-Fire, H-Succeeded Fire, we had tons of stuff donated to Unity Shop that was used. And it wasn't worth anything.
0: There was just a thing uh, two weeks ago, I forget what it was, where they were showing the amount of material that's contributed because people want to give. And they're com- it's completely inappropriate.
1: Well-meaning. I don't want it's to all take meaning, any, yeah, yeah. I yeah, know, no, I got yeah, that. That yeah, was the point. Yeah, yeah. They, they're saying, you know, these slippers. Uh, they're out in the garage someplace. They were my favorites. Somebody's gonna really love these. The holes and the worn-out part and the mold around the. Corner. I mean, they're gonna love. It. It's like that. We got stuff, t-shirts with holes in it. That I mean, it's like, it, really. But but I think it was well meaning. I'm just right. saying that now what happens is, and I had the experience myself, having lost a couple of houses. I've had people come along, and and I, here's a story. This one lady said, you know, you're tall like my son. I made him some shirts, oh, no. and he didn't like them, but I, they would fit you. And you might not like them either. Well, <laughs> I didn't get that far. She and I know why he didn't want them. The pockets were underneath the armpit. I mean – and guess what? She expected to see me wearing those yeah, things. Yeah, right. So now all of a sudden what people give you becomes a burden. You have what? to manage that stuff. And now you have to figure out how to – you don't, you're not thinking that way, but all of a sudden you kind of want to please the person that tried to help you, but they didn't help you, and it becomes a burden. So Unity Shop, we have new school clothes, new new stuff for kids. We have – really appropriate attire for adults that that everybody would be proud of and it's set up as a shop it's not handing somebody something so now we're considered considering their dignity their self-respect we're That's letting a big them ch- part of your success uh, isn't it it's huge it's absolutely huge it started with pearl chase 1917 oh. and she thought this idea of choice was important because and i'll, I'll skip ahead but when they come through Unity, as I mentioned, was the all these agencies that refer us. That's a magic deal. Closest we can tell, never been done any place else in America. Well, that's what
0: I was going to ask you: Is is this model? been replicated anywhere. I mean, is it, is it yet another thing that Santa Barbara is unique for like Earth Day and blue lasers? Sambos. And and (laughs) Sambos. Hotel sick,
1: motel sick. It's like that. And you would, you'd never expect to find something like that here, but it has to do with the people that had the right heart and they started it. And so what happens is Every city in America will have a little food bank or a little pantry someplace that's open every other Tuesday from one to three, and maybe right. you can get some groceries. But for Unity Shop, it's a one-stop place. You can get everything you need. So you think about it, you got a single mom with two kids and something's gone horribly wrong and she can't provide for her family. In every other city in America, she's expected to go to five different places and try to get help and keep the two jobs and the two kids together. That's an impossibility. And it doesn't work very well anyway. What we have done, a unity, and what Barbara Tellison and, and their earlier starters, you know, um, Hazel Severy and uh, Pearl Chase, Hazel taught at the Normal School, which became UCSB. Oh, wow! <laughs> I love the wow. history of wow. that. Wow. They were concerned about what it feels like to be on the receiving end. If you, mm. as a CEO, if you're looking down from the top, mark uh, 35,000 feet, you're saying, okay, let's match resources with needs. Okay, it, it, that works done. We've solved the problem. Not quite so simple. If you listen to what it feels like to be on the receiving end, everything changes. As an example, what's still done in this town and every city in America at Christmas time, we do the adopt a family deal, right? Sure. Here's a family. They got two kids, three kids. It's a single mom. So you you bring her a big turkey dinner and all the stuff and you buy that sweater for that boy and she wants a doll. So you, you go out and you spend a lot of money and you do all that. That's what Barbara Telepson did in 1972, and she did it right. She spent a lot of money and she went to this family and the, it was safe back then and the mom wasn't home and the kids were you know, old enough, they invited her in. She brings all this stuff, Christmas wrapping, big basket of food, all that stuff. She, kids were all excited, of course. She walks out, here comes the mom back from, her, from work. She says, what are you doing in my house? Oh, it's fine, I got your name from, from a list and I, I found out what your kids want and I, here's a fabulous meal for you, it's gonna be great. And she said, "You know, I don't know how to tell you this, but for the last couple of years, someone, maybe a church or someplace, put me on a list. And I've sometimes I have four or five people that come by and help. Sometimes nobody. But you've just come in, and you're Santa Claus to my kids. They really appreciate you. And my role and my uh, personage in the eyes of my kids is degraded right now. Mm. Mm. You just brought you probably brought me a turkey dinner. Oh yeah, it's fabulous. We don't eat turkey." I haven't oh. got an oven big enough to cook a turkey, and so all of a sudden it, it, it's just like this disconnect. Uh, but I brought you the sweater that you're that a blue sweater. Let me tell you, it probably isn't the sweater I would have bought for my son. And and the doll, I brought her cabbage patch. My daughter doesn't like cabbage patch. She wants a Barbie doll. So all of a sudden, the well-intentioned thing, we're back to you know right. trying to right. do right. something right. good. Right. All of a sudden, missed the target. And so you go back and say, what does it feel like to be given things? That means you're needy, you're less than, yeah. and we're going to fix you. Here's a box of stuff. Next, got another box for the next person. You know, impersonal, non relational. So now you give them the shop part of Unity Shop. Kenny Loggins named it actually 30 years ago. 1988, he, he named it Unity Shop because it went year-round. And, and the Council of Christmas Cheer, which it was for about 70 years.
0: That was that year, yeah. our software company was four years old. We were working with KEYT. Uh. And I did the flying logo for the television special. Did you? Because we were a 3D animation company here in town. Love so that's what, what, what we could do. Then I created a high-res print, had them printed in Japan, and then I remember driving to Kenny's house, and he hand-signed a dozen of those prints. Oh, nice. And then they auctioned them off during the, telethon. the telethon. Yeah. It's an old model, the telethon. This is our
1: 30th year with oh Kenny Loggins God. this year. So 100th year anniversary from Pearl Chase starting it to, uh, to 30 years with Kenny. But not, he named it the shop, Old English Spelling Shop. I mean, it confuses people. But Unity is the 300 agencies. That's how we get the 20,000 people. Shop means we give them a shopping cart. I love and that. we assign a staff person or a volunteer. We have 1,800 volunteers on site. So the volunteers, that revolves through an annual deal. But a lot of kids get in community service hours, right. and they're sure, learning sure, some sure, really sure, valuable sure, sure, things. Sure. So they get a shopping cart. So now it's like Nordstrom's. So they get got a shopping consultant, but you can, you can shop for, uh, at your own freedom. So they go into each department or even a little category like peanut butter. You can have so many items based on the number of people in your family but within those parameters you can take whatever you want you got produce we've got baby food juice beans cereal pastas all the stuff is there and so they have the freedom to choose what they're going to provide for their family and all of a sudden they're feeling a little bit better about life and if you've been into the new shop on uh, the old one on state street was magical we had uh, we lost that building, unfortunately, and that was a very difficult time for us. But the check-in office was the Black Pearl pirate ship. You should see it. It's still there. It, wow. But the kids don't enjoy it anymore. We had to move. But we had the mast, the rigging. It was 20 feet long. Cannons, ship's wheel, the whole thing. Train ran around overhead. And then when the little village started. So we had the Bank of Unityville. It was a 10 by 10 building. It looked like a bank, an old Greek bank. And you'd drive your shopping cart in there. It had veg- canned vegetables. So, I mean, the, it was so much fun for the kids. The kids would see things, collectibles, antiques, different things, uh, and they pointed point it out to the parents. So the parents now become the heroes for bringing the kids to a right. fun place. Right. And the f- parents are now feeling a little bit They're better empowered. about life, empowered. The kids are, are having a little bit better time. When you get to checkout, we're running the barcodes. We have to put our own barcode on every item to get an audit, which is a, another nightmare. However, when we're running the barcodes, it feels like a normal shopping experience. Right. The kids have no idea. The parents aren't paying for right. this. And so the parents are providing. They're picking out the clothes we're going to wear. They're picking out the food we're going to eat. They're picking out you know, the, the household goods, just like at a real store. And mom's going through this shopping thing, and life is reinforced. The family unit is reinforced because of all of these little unique nuances that are really important at the Unity Shop.
0: Tom, how does someone get in touch with you guys? Well, the, well or if they know someone that they want to refer over, how do they do that? Yeah, the we,
1: it starts with the website. It's yep. probably easy. just Unity Shop, S-H-O-P-P-E, of course. Yep. It's that other. And it's .org at the end. Got it. And uh, certainly my phone number is 805-965-965. Yep. 9051 be glad to take anybody local on a tour or anybody coming from town we had a professor from ball state university i actually recorded an album at ball state so i it vibrates to me he's taught social social like civics and social service kind of stuff and he came out here to visit a family member and he saw the telethon and he said you know can't be that good i mean it's you know they they can teach it they can say a good thing on tv and they got celebrities and all that stuff but so the next year he comes by and he secretly volunteers down at the unity oh. shop it was kind of a neat deal this stealth thing to yeah, say, yeah. check this thing out so he takes School back to ball state and he's teaching the unity shop model no kidding and we've had people that graduate and they find their way through here occasionally and they say you know i learned about this i want to come see it firsthand oh my god now we have the the Fan club for Peter Noon, the fan club for Kenny Loggins, um, Jeff Bridges, of course, has become a good sure. friend. But those fan club members will come for the telephone. They'll donate six, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars. Some of them. They'll volunteer for a week. Kenny and Peter they do luncheons and do little private sure. things for them. They take good care of their fans. But the fans love the Unity Shop, and they're saying, uh, "Yeah, we're from Cincinnati, St. Louis, Atlanta, Washington State, L.A." How come there's nothing like the mm. Unity Shop mm. in our town? We need this. And that's consistent. Now, that's kind of why those guys, Jeff Bridges is on this No Kid Hungry thing, and he's 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 bought into what the Unity Shop is all about. And Kenny and those guys saying, this is a scalable model. This is replicatable. Every city in America needs it. If we can pay off our debt, we owe $2 million on our new building. So that's our goal for our 100th anniversary trying to pay off that debt. If we can get, get instead of shuffling along, looking at our feet, trying to make payroll. If we sure, can, if we can sure. get uh, cleaned up so that we're not vulnerable to economic downturns for the next hundred years, we can start looking out on the horizon and start thinking about. Uh, how to replicate this in other cities. So we're talking about people, you know, include us in your will. Uh, That's an easy thing. You don't have to write a check now. Put us in your will. That's how the big nonprofits are able to actually sustain themselves
0: and actually grow. And that's what I think Unity Shop is worthy of. This has been a great conversation. And as I predicted, 45 minutes come and gone. Ba-boom. There it this is. This is a. This was very inspirational to me, and I hope the listener is going to look for maybe an opportunity in their their own community. They're not from yeah. here, yeah. Uh, to to see how they might help if they're they're so moved. Tom, thank you so much. Well, it's been my joy, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. The um, the listener knows that we're at the part of the show where we get to wrap a bow around this conversation. We get to um, give it a name, and I know you were advertising mm-hmm. guy, old advertising guy, and you're a songwriter, so you used to. Song titles. So what's the title of this conversation? Relationships Matter." Okay, There you go. So, um, so I, include them in your life. I mean that
1: would be the idea. And, ah, and if they're not in your life, figure it out. So if you have to initiate, you know uh, Jesus said, "Treat other people the way you'd like to be treated. We usually wait to be treated, see if we like it, and then we respond. But that's not the way to do it. You need to initiate that. So reach out to somebody and say, you know, I'd, I'd love to find out a little bit more about your life. Let me buy you lunch.
0: So, listener, that's your their mission for today. Reach out to someone. And uh, thank, you, thank you again so much. I also want to thank uh, California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Our podcasting partner, Pull Press for this great studio, and Cielo24, who provides the searchable captions for the show. The 805 Connect project, we're now <clears throat> in our third year. In fact, we've just finished our 80th show, Tom.
1: Thank you. Fabulous. Yeah, Congratulations. This is
0: great. Uh, it's supported by partners and sponsors throughout the region. I want to thank them as well. More information, if you're interested in learning about our project and our mission to to promote economic vitality here in the region, please go to 805connect.com. If you liked this show, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look across the table at the person that you're talking to, grab their phone from them, bring up the podcast app, go to search and type in 805 and subscribe them to the show. They will say thank you. After they listen to some of the, I mean, of 80 shows in there, there's some, they're all really interesting. There's some real, <clears throat> some real gems. I'd love to hear from you personally. So you can send me a note, mark at 805connect.com. Let me know if you've got an idea for a guest or um, something that you like particularly about the show. A lot of you write me all the time regularly. Thank you so much that uh, it's so encouraging to, to know that we've got live people on the other end. So until next time. This is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.